0: Okay, Uh, and um, can you spotlight me, uh, Ellen? I can do it, there we go. Hi, everybody. Today is Yom HaShoah. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Last night, um, I I got to be the sort of master of ceremony at the um, Ulster County Jewish Federation Yom HaShoah commemoration where we did what I always get the most from, which is we heard people's stories. And uh, it was really, it was powerful. Uh, Lolly Steckman's mom, Lola Moses—I have no idea how old she is. I, I think she, she might live forever. It, it's amazing. Uh, was on, in addition to surviving the camps, was on and with a, her own, you know, story that defies how 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 horrible how horrible. But she was actually on the Exodus. The ship that came to, uh, that sailed from Europe to Israel, the famous ship. Uh, And then I asked Sid Reicher, who's a member of our synagogue, to talk about his father, who was a partisan fighter in the forests of uh, Poland and Russia for the entire war. And then there was a third generation, uh, a man named Don Shapira, who spoke about the work he's doing uh, to keep awareness of um, the Holocaust and of the need for. uh, Dialogue and connection a lot. It was beautiful. So I was thinking that um, it is my want whenever we have a, a Jewish holiday or commemoration on our calendar to mark that somehow in my class. And so I decided to spend this class telling you about. Introducing us all to, because as it happens, we've never done this here, even though some of you are going to be very familiar with this name, um, the life and teachings of Rabbi Kalanimus Kalman Shapiro, um, known as the Eish Kodesh, the Holy Fire, which is uh, one of the um, books that he wrote. And um, he was a Hasidic rabbi in Warsaw. Who served his community? He actually is called the Piacetzner uh, Rebbe because he lived prior to the war, he lived in a suburb of Poland, Piacetzna. I'm sure I'm not saying it right. And he, um, so in the interwar period between the First and Second World Wars, he was an esteemed uh, and beloved teacher. Um, in the Warsaw area. He um, moved into Warsaw when the war began and became confined to the Warsaw ghetto. His story, yes, I will share this in the chat, uh, uh, Sarah. Um, His name was Kalanimus Kalman Shapiro, Um, but we'll put this information in the chat, don't worry. His story is as devastating as everyone else's during that period. Um, What sets him apart is that he continued to teach and lead during those Warsaw ghetto years, after he had lost his wife, his mother, his son, his daughter-in-law, his his daughter, all murdered by the Nazis in various bombings and um, actions. Uh, And Nachemia Polin, who is a um, really wonderful scholar, wrote his doctoral dissertation, uh, which he later turned into a book. And I'll ask Rabbi Ellen as always to be my help by by uh putting these into the um chat um this book was called the holy fire it's the collected um torah teachings that he gave during the three years from 1939 to 1940 january 43 which is when his correspondence ends so let me just give you the beginning of Nehemia Poland's introduction so that you understand why we have this writing at all. In the aftermath of World War II, a construction worker laying the foundation for a new building on the site of the destroyed Warsaw Ghetto came across a container buried in the earth. Inside were manuscripts written in Hebrew characters which were taken to the Jewish Historical Institute in Warsaw. At the top of the bundle of writings was a cover letter written in Yiddish, beginning with the word Aufmerksam, attention in large letters, punctuated by three exclamation points. The letter read, by the grace of God, I respectfully request the honored individual or institution that will find my following writings And here are the names of his manuscripts that were in this container. On the Torah readings from the years 1939 to 1942, to be so kind as to take the trouble to forward them to the land of Israel at the following address, Rabbi Isaiah Shapira, Tel Aviv, Palestine. That was his brother. Please send this letter as well. When, with God's compassion, I and the remaining Jews will survive the war, I request that everything be returned to me or to the Warsaw rabbinate. May God have mercy on us, the remnant of Israel, wherever we may be. May he spare us, grant us life, and save us in the twinkling of an eye. With thanks from the depth of my heart, Kolonimus And the date was January 3rd, nineteen. 19- so that is how this manuscript was discovered in the ruins of the Warsaw Ghetto he buried them there and it was published in Hebrew in Israel in 1960 and then Nehemiah Polin translated it and wrote a biography and commentary on it which is this book um, this was not uh, Reb Shapiro's only book, he was an incredibly innovative spiritual educator who was in the twenties and thirties. Thank you. Uh, if you look in the chat, you'll see the different books that I'm showing you today. Um, he wanted to revitalize spiritual education and character education in the Jewish community. And he was a deeply spiritual man. One of his his treatises was called Bnei Machshava Tova, which means the fellowship of either conscious community or could be translated as the fellowship of um, uh, positive mindfulness, Machshava Tova written in the 1930s, I believe. This is one of the translations of that book, which uh, Rabbi Ellen also put in the chat. Conscious community, a guide to inner work. That's what his book was called, translated into contemporary idiom by Rabbi Andrea Cohen Kiner. Let me read Uh, a little bit of her introduction as well. And then, well, then I'll say more. In 1992, I attended a seminar with Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi at the Eilat Chaim Retreat Center in the Catskill Mountains of New York State. Many of us have been there. Rabbi Zalman was outlining the streams of thought and scholarship that have influenced him in his seminal work on Judaism and consciousness. He spent a day describing late Hasidus, meaning Hasidism between the two world wars. Most of the people in that room had first discovered meditation, self-observation, and quote, work on self from non-Jewish sources. Thus, it was a pleasure, a relief, and the beginning of a healing for many of us to frame this powerful learning within Jewish sources. Reb Salman held up the Hebrew version of this book you are holding and said, this needs to be Translated. And so Andrea and her colleague, Yosef Grodzky, I know both, some of us know both of them, spent many years deeply trying to translate and understand this text. And uh, then she said, then, um, here's a little introduction. Kalonimus Kalman Shapiro was a teacher in the rich tradition of Polish Hasidism. Descended from great teachers and masters on both sides of his family. He was destined and suited to be a leader in Israel. Reb Kalonimus was born in Grodzisk, Poland in 1889. From the very beginning, his father, Reb Elie of Grodz, expressed the highest expectation about his son. At the tender age of two, when Hasidism, Hasidim would approach Rebbe Elimelech with written requests for help and spiritual guidance, Rebbe Elimelech would commonly instruct his followers to place their notes under the head of his sleeping toddler. But before Rebbe Kolonimus reached the age of three, his father passed away. His mother and elder relatives took on the responsibility of his education. Um, and he was a prodigy and a deeply sensitive soul. And um, Reb Colonimus was first and foremost, a teacher. In the name of his father-in-law, he founded Yeshivat Das Moshe, which grew and flourished under his guidance. His goal was to, to create a spiritual environment in which Jewish youth could grow to become deep wells of wisdom for their people. He often said, that the whole yeshiva was for the sake of the few evolved individuals called Bnei Aliyah ascended who could emerge from such an environment. His interest in the spiritual life of his pupils of every age was sincere and avid. He taught that every child from the age of four or five needed to be in relationship with a mashpia, a spiritual mentor. He believed and taught that each of us is capable of great heights. If we have high expectations of ourselves and resolve to do so, we can reach our spiritual goal. Quote, quoting the uh, Reb Kalonimus's biographer, Aaron Sorosky, who wrote, it was as if Reb Colonimus were attempting to take the feeling he had received about himself from his father and pass it along to the children of an entire generation. Rabbi Shapira's educational philosophy shines through every book he wrote. The image of God is impressed upon us. We are capable of great heights. We are the intersection of the physical and spiritual world, both of of which lay claims to our faculties and desires. Our goal is to choose God, to choose the subtle above the crass. We thereby bring holiness, into ourselves in the world. In one of his books called A Student's Obligations, he warns parents Someone who is trying to educate, this is a quote, someone who is trying to educate through command and habituation need not pay any attention to his child or student, to his nature, to the way he thinks, or to his other distinguishing characteristics. A single command can suffice for an entire age group. For it is not the student or the child that is important, but the person giving the commands. An educator, however, who wishes to uncover the soul of the child must penetrate into the midst of his limited consciousness until he reaches the hidden soul spark. So this language, as you could hear, it's both very traditional, but very modern because he was in Warsaw. Warsaw was called the Paris of Eastern Europe. And he was in contact, not just with his traditional community, but with the entire community. And he was a progressive educator of this um, tradition, the Hasidic tradition. It's remarkable. Um, I'm gonna read one more thing and then I'm going to share some of his teachings. Nehemia Poland in his introduction explains, um, and I just wanna say, so you understand how this, these teachings come to us. I think this is important uh, and forgive me, I have to find the, uh, the reference I wanted to share with you. Um, one moment. Ah. This work is based on my doctoral dissertation at Boston University in 1983, where I was privileged to have Professor Ellie Wiesel as my major advisor. During the time of my graduate study and the years since, He has been my teacher and inspiration, as well as an unfailing source of guidance and encouragement. Most of all, he has shown me how one can convey the most painful of topics, as well as the most joyful, with sensitivity, insight, and respect for the student and the process of education. I am grateful to Elie Wiesel for his confidence in me. The initial suggestion for the topic of this work came from Professor Zalman Shakhtar Shalom, who early on recognized the significance of Rabbi Kalanimus Shapira and Aish Kodesh and encouraged me to begin my own research. At Boston University, I also benefited from the help of the late Professor Nahum Glatzer, who gave freely of his time and wisdom. I mentioned those names because Eli Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor, Reb Zalman, a Holocaust survivor, Nachum Glazer, a, a survivor, a escape a refugee from Europe. These giants of the 20th century are our direct link to a world that was destroyed, and that's why I thought it would be appropriate on Yom Hashoah to share these teachings that were saved in a tin can in the rubble of the Warsaw ghetto. So that we, cause that world was lost, but it wasn't lost. If we keep it alive, I mean, the tragedy is unreparable, but we don't have, so in honor and to mark this day, I wanted to share something through a lineage that's very close to us. We've heard of Elie Wiesel. We read, Elie. We, these are people in our lifetimes. These are people we know who knew and who who knew that world and who passed it on to us. And uh, after hearing the stories last night of, of from our community members, I, I felt moved to share something in this manner. Um, the readings here are worthy of months and months of study, right? So, and so I'm just gonna give a little taste. What I'm not going to share, I'm not gonna share readings from the Holy Fire, but what this book does is uh, Nehemia Poland, by studying this shows how colonimus common Kalonimus, uh, Kalonimus Shapira, how he um, continued to try to keep keep his Hasidim from succumbing to utter despair. And he himself in the midst of a world gone completely mad, right? In the midst of difficulties that they never could of horrors and uh, atrocities they could not even have imagined. And that's what's remarkable about this book. For our purposes today, I think it's more a more direct line to look at some of his teachings from this book, which is written as a little treatise, an outline form with with, um, um, headings for what are the qualities that lead to a conscious community, that lead to a community that focuses on positive mindfulness, which he was doing, I wanna remind you, for all of us who've discovered mindfulness in other, from other traditions in an exclusively Jewish setting with exclusively Jewish sources. So again, for all of us who, uh, uh, like myself, who didn't know that this was going on, well, it was. And it's there for us in a beautiful, this is a beautiful little volume, I assume it's still in print in some maybe reprint, I hope because Aronson Publisher has been out of um, uh, business for a long time. So I hope this doesn't cost $900. Um, But I'm gonna share a document with you. I, 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 um, I scanned some pages from this text and we're just gonna look at it a little bit. I don't have like an end point in mind. I didn't have enough time to do that, but I wanna give us a taste. Of how he well, this this little instructional booklet on how to grow in positive mindfulness. Uh, let me share my screen. Hold on. Um, is that visible? Great, just a moment, very good. Here in the beginning of his book, I'm gonna read from this page. He lays out what it means to join this community. Okay, this was a spiritual community that he was creating within the Jewish community of Warsaw. Our association is not organized for the purpose of attaining power or intervening in the affairs of community or state, whether directly or indirectly. Quite the opposite. Our goal is to gradually rise above the noise and tumult of the world by steady incremental steps. It is not consistent with our goals to hand out awards as to who is advanced and who lags behind. The whole premise of our group is the vast human potential for both baseness and elevation. Our bodies and souls are currently quite unevolved, but our potential for holiness is very great. Holiness is our key and our primary value. Honors and comparisons serve no useful purpose. I'll welcome any comment you have, uh, as always. But I do want to say that that's how I have always framed what our spiritual community is about. Our synagogue. Um, I've always said, if you want to have political influence, please join a Jewish political organization. This, this is not a that's, activism is not exclusive from spiritual work. So that really speaks to me. The other thing that jumps out at me is the contemporary. We could be reading this in a, a today, right? This was written in the 30s from a very traditional Jewish teacher. So no comparisons or honors. It is too, it is vitally important that we do not create, God forbid, any boundaries that separate us from Jews who are not members of our group. The whole point of our association is to love each other as much as possible. If there were a fire in town, the fire company would come to put out the fire and save lives. They use the equipment that they have brought with them and the techniques that they have been trained to use. Will they ridicule and avoid the citizens of the city who are trying their best to put out the flames? They have the same goal. Put out the flames and save lives. Each one, quote, saves in the way he can. But the fire company can be more effective. The techniques available to a group are qualitatively different than what an individual can hope to attain. This is our current situation. We are constantly distraught. What is the point of our existence? Day after day, I try to be conscious of God with every thought, every word, every deed. At the very least, I try not to fall further away from him, God forbid. I try not to become distracted by the confusion of daily life. Yet each and every day, I undermine my own efforts. Not waiting until the Holy One withdraws his presence from me, God forbid, no, I withdraw from him. I find myself unmoored in uncharted territory, confused. What will we accomplish? We spend our days and years in emptiness and misery. Finally, as we approach the end, we wake up to the truth and cry in despair. Oh God, what have we done? How have we come to this point with our spirits and bodies so rough and undeveloped? We have lived our entire lives as a lump of flesh. Demeaning fantasies, frivolous thoughts and unworthy urges invade my attention. I'm constantly preoccupied with meaningless illusion. I hold myself completely responsible for this tragic descent from the precious nearness of God to this unsettling chaos. This disturbing awareness eats away at our hearts and minds. We are distraught, but we do not know how to help ourselves. This is why we have banded together. We want to find out how to improve our desperate condition. If all of us work together and use these strategies to unite our hearts in the service of God, perhaps with his help, we will not live in total waste and despair. We may yet rest in the sheltering presence of God, even while we live this earthly life. And then he goes on and uh, uh, to talk about who should join this particular chevra, this particular uh, project. It is important for us to be explicit and clear that our society accepts into its ranks only those individuals who share these concerns. If people know in their hearts that they are not similarly burdened with these concerns, and we will spell out the criteria below, we ask that they do not join our group. They will harm themselves and others. Their presence will serve as a distraction to the rest of the group whose hearts and minds are similarly focused on this work. It is not even particularly useful that an unmotivated person should read a book like this. This is referred to in a midrash about the Jews not revealing their mysteries in Egypt. Uh, Here, I'll go on to number four. Um, Further on with God's help, we will spell out the practical techniques of our group work But at this point, we must clearly state that only those individuals described below can participate in and benefit from our group. And here is his criteria. You must truly feel the distress we described above because of the terrible chasm between yourselves and God. This is not an intellectual sort of knowing. Everyone, unless they are drunk or insane knows we are far from holiness. However, The members of our society feel such a pervasive sadness that we worry about our spiritual affairs no less than we worry about our financial affairs, God help us. We are occasionally moved to tears because of our spiritual concerns and our overwhelming sense of unworthiness. B, whether your level of knowledge is great or small, you must have a sincere commitment to Torah. C, you can work in a trade or business, but you must be able to free yourself at least three times a week for group meetings. You must sincerely work to integrate the advice of the group into your life. We will expand on this later. If you are characteristically unreliable, you will make a commitment one day and renege on it the next. This quality of inconsistency will prevent any clear progress. E. A person who lies and is deceitful is the prisoner of his lies. It is always wrong to lie but a normal person may regret an occasional lie and return to the fold. However, a person who is habitually deceitful lies to himself along with everyone else. My father-in-law of blessed memory, the holy and refined teacher related that people like this cannot feel remorse and resolve since they deny the truth about the situation, even to themselves. Such a person can suddenly decide to think of himself as highly accomplished and very involved when in reality he has accomplished nothing and has not changed a bit. Um, Here, let me stop the share for for a minute. I find this fascinating. Um, Yes. uh, Barbara Mermel says, Rep. Shlomo Karlbach once told me that one of the greatest tragedies of the Holocaust was the great teachers and rabbis that were wiped out. Uh, That is the truth. Oh, a world was lost and the survivors uh, have tried to rescue the wisdom that was lost even if the people could not be rescued. Jerry says that last piece about habitual liars makes me think of a particular politician. Me too, it's, it, it's like I couldn't think of anything else. Um, so what happens then in this after that introduction of who should be in this, in this group is a section on the principles of group work and the practical advice he wants to give. So for example, um, I think I'll share a different document to give you an example of how it sounds because it's uh, something that we would need to study together. The simple truth, number 15. We have established that the goal of our association is to expand our awareness, to draw out and deepen and strengthen consciousness. I'm so touched by this because when I became a rabbi, I decided that the purpose of my work was to assist everyone, including myself, to grow in love and awareness. This is not a purely mental activity. As part of this work, the soul itself is activated. It is called upon to take mastery over our physical side. If we constantly center ourselves in this soulfulness, we will achieve levels of awareness that we can barely wish for or imagine. now. What more can we want than to have our soul as a constant companion, ever pulling our consciousness to its sublime and elevated perspective. Since the goal of our repair and healing is to demonstrate our spiritual nature, we must always behave in a fashion that is welcoming of the spirit. We must avoid behaviors that pull us off course by grounding us in the lowly and chaotic side of our nature. Therefore, conduct yourself with simplicity and genuineness at all time. Simple sincerity is the clothing that the soul wears in everyday life, isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful metaphor. Simple sincerity is the clothing the soul wears in everyday life. Manipulation is the opposite of soulfulness, it is the triumph of rationalization. Far from the mindfulness that is indicative of the soul, this scheming is what the world defines as intelligent. and powerful. This low level of mass consensus is the sole criterion for determining what is acceptable in speech, thought and action in the value system of those who are unenlightened. When we speak of this craftiness and scheming, we do not refer exclusively to outright lies. Rather, we also mean to include the root of falsehood itself, which is the first inkling of untruth. I wanna reflect on that and invite you to as well. Um, One of the ongoing tasks and growing edges for me in my life, as both a rabbi, a leader, a husband, a father, a person is to identify when I'm trying to manipulate other people to my own gain, Even if I think I'm righteous, right? Even if I think I know best, And I try either overtly or subtly to manipulate who they are and how they can be in the world. That's different than interrupting harmful behavior. That's different. I'm talking about um, imposing my will on others. And I've worked and worked and worked to try to identify when I'm doing that out of a sense of intense urgency or righteousness or anger or anything at all like that. So many motivations make me want to try to change other people. Manipulation is the opposite of soulfulness. It is the triumph of rationalization. What is the underlying motivation that brings a person to conceive and speak falsehood and untruth? What is the inner condition that allows one to think and speak lies, to become crafty and unreliable in every way, to live out of alignment with vitality and truth? The fingerprint of the Holy One is truth. The whole world bears this imprint. The flowering plant is alive. It has the energy and the life pattern of its biological life form. It is real. An artificial plant may look like a plant, but it is unreal. Truth is reality, while lying partakes of unreality and non being. Truth is an aspect of life. Falsehood emanates from the side of death, since it lacks vitality and corresponds to nothing in life, it is vacuous. What is real is true. A person whose every deed and word have the power of this reality and truthfulness is a person who is simple and wise. The plant flourishes with simple truth. There is no artifice, no faking. The plant grows because of the power within it, because it has an innate compunction to flower, And sprout just in this way. A small child unfolds and develops in accordance with the truth and power of his inner being. Anyone who is guided by the light of his soul is also simple and true. If a person does not act in accordance with the wisdom of his heart and spirit, he will fall from truth and power his actions begin to bear the stamp of falsehood and death. He is already a liar. He may never overtly lie saying of a tree, for example, there's a rock, but he is a liar nonetheless. The first inkling to utter such a blatant lie is the very same, a lack of reality and consonance with life in thought and word and deed. This simplicity and purity make up the delightful quality of a child. When you speak with a child, you have the sensation of interacting with his soul. When you ask him something, he lets the question penetrate to the core of his being. From there, you have his answer. His answer is simple and direct. He means what he says. It is not necessary for you to be uninformed or undiscriminating as a child can be, but you must be wholehearted. If you are asked a question, do not sit around and calculate, how will I answer him? To be polite, I should say this. If I answer him in this way, he will think that I'm smart. In order to control his perception of me, I should say thus and so. In the end, your answer will be a bag of wind. You may be polite. You may be thought of as smart or whatever goal you had. But you and your truth will be missing. This is not the way of reality in life, of spirit and truth. This is falsehood and chaos. Above all else, answer with sincerity. Speak simply and directly from your heart. Use your wits only to determine if what you're saying is accurate. Your mental review itself needs to be simple and sincere. Your mind is used as a tool to facilitate the straightforward expressions of your heart. If you find that a truthful answer will be harmful to you, or if you have some other obstacle to speaking truthfully, simply say, as our sages advise, I do not know and leave it at that. But do not hem and haw and give some convoluted response that is totally twisted and insincere. I'll stop sharing now. Every sentence is a gem. Here are some other headings. Sensitivity and concentration, ways of knowing, the meditative mind, overcoming habits of perception, Guided imagery, arousal and motivation. Propitious moments, reaching for transcendence. Observations and feelings, deceiving appearances, acting as if. The simple truth, that's what I was just reading. Distraction, music, music. He has a lot to say about the use of music. One of his longest, self-honesty. I'll read a little. There are people who think they have the right idea about things and that they alone are clear-headed and self-honest. Every time one of them has some inkling of an insight, He analyzes it and explores it so that he will not be subject to fantasy or delusion. Was it real? Perhaps it was just coarse imagination. Maybe there is some physical explanation. He might've felt a sense of opening because of some concern or relief that was purely mundane and not at all spiritual. I won't go on with that one. It would take too long to unpack. And Subtle Progress, that's his last entry. Subtle progress. Any of us who've been on this path know that we won't see instant results. He says in this last entry about subtle progress. After each activity, look inward and say, I worked or I studied or I prayed Now, do I feel more refined, more attuned? Now that I have opened myself to holiness, do I feel at all elevated, liberated from the unending distractions of daily life? Have I created a hunger, a yearning for the heights I achieved during prayer? Is it something I long for and miss? Is it real for me? Have I touched, here's his last phrase, Have I touched the beauty and loveliness of that world in a way that remains open to me now? Marcus.
1: Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Three things. One, there was a certain point in which you were reading when I realized consciously or otherwise he was responding perhaps to Kohelet, to Ecclesiastes. Um, it's a little out of context now, but there was a passage you read where it really seemed like he was probably aware that he was kind of addressing the questions of Kohelet in what I perceived to be a far more awake way than the original. Um, the second thing is I'm deeply moved because 12 or 13 years ago I discovered this and I have this printed out. And I was saddened that I never knew anybody who knew about it. And I thought of it as like a time capsule buried. And I felt it's not even a printed book that I could find. And I'm delighted and moved and a little sad as well, but grateful that you know that we're sharing about it, that people do know about this. May his, uh, not his name so much as his, what he doesn't care about his name really i think may what he's giving us be expanded and known and the final piece is um he asks in what you read a question that maybe i'm not wise enough to have heard it but i didn't hear an answer to his question i didn't hear him actually address his own question the question was what is the root I, forgive me that i don't remember the wording don't something please. like what is the root of this problem i'm describing Of people's non alignment, their
0: dishonesty.
1: And Uh, perhaps the answer. I just. So, what I wanted to say is, my. Maybe I'm unwise, but my perception of the answer would be um, the root of the problem is not really knowing who we are, who we actually are. Uh, one might call it false identification. Most of us, like the culture, habitually, whatever, think we are our ego, our system of fear-based defenses. And that's human and I'm not judging it. But once, if, if one genuinely awakens to, I have an ego and I can laugh at it, but I'm not merely that. I am my essence, my soul, whatever you want to call it. Then one can afford to be much less defensive and reactive and embark on the project he's describing. But he did not name, at least in the passage you read, that as he didn't answer it, maybe he did elsewhere. Could you help me with that if you know? Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, Here's how he begins his instruction. It's called forgetfulness. Scripture admonishes us saying, you have forgotten that God gave birth to you. This is the underlying factor that distances us from God. And that's how he begins his whole introduction. It's, we've forgotten who we really are. And in the words of traditional Midrash, the the Jewish way, we're not menial laborers, we're sons of the king and daughters. You know, we have to understand that we have this elevated soul within us and that our, our task in life is to put our, our bodies in service of that greatness. So yes, that's how, that's how he describes it in traditional language. And I appreciate what you said about Ecclesiastes as well, because this, this is a man who was completely immersed and conversant in the whole body of Jewish wisdom literature. So that, and Jewish mystical literature, so that when he speaks, all the references, and that's why it's good to have annotated editions of his teaching, all the references are um, uh, linked to an, an, an earlier source of wisdom. And I think one of the things that struck me about this is that he was able, in the way that me and myself and so many of my colleagues are attempting to do, and all of us in our own setting, I'm attempting to put ancient Jewish wisdom about awareness and spiritual growth into modern idiom, but still be true to the sources. And that's why I find, one of the reasons I find his teaching so uh, compelling because he seems to have succeeded in doing that um, in so many ways. And, And Ellen, before I recognize you, I want to say one other thing, which is that this book, has sat on my shelf for years, barely cracked saying, I'm gonna to get to this, I'm gonna to get to this. And so I just wanna thank you today because this is the first time I've finally gotten to it. And now I'm just grateful. Rabbi Ellen, I mean, Ellen Weaver, and then Robin. You got on mute.
1: That's exactly what I wanted to say. I started this. I know Andrea, so I bought it immediately. I was really excited about it. I read a little and then it got onto my shelf. Mm -hmm. And, And I've been just like wildly writing, you know, sections of what you've been reading. And I'm so excited to take this very closely and be with it and see if I can get a few people to maybe read it together. I think I tried to do that when it first came out and then it disappeared. Right. So thank you. This is really, really important and a perfect time. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, Leah, let me call on you in a moment because Robin's ahead of you in the, in line. And then I'll also mark note Barbara's Robin, thank I you. Ellen. Said-
1: I just, yeah, I'd be interested in a group like that, Ellen. Um, I just want to say it reminds me of Fritz Perls. You know, it, it seems like that whole thinking school of thought was the birth of psychology. And, you know, so many of the original psychologists were Jewish.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Think of the gestalt of that, of the late 19th century, early 20th century, and everything that was emerging of the language of inner work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. You know, another of Shapira's contemporaries was Abraham Joshua Heschel. The blessing for for us regarding Heschel is that he got out in 1940 by the skin of his teeth because he also had a PhD. Heschel had moved from the Hasidic world into the more secularized world and um, was spon- was already known and got sponsored by Hebrew Union College in the United States so that he could get out of Europe. And then we had the benefit of the next 30 years of his magnificent writing. But it reminds me very much of uh, uh, Reb, Reb Kalanimas uh, here. Uh, in fact, um, Nechemia Poland ended his book with a quote from Heschel. Listen to this, Abraham Joshua Heschel has said that there are no proofs for the existence of God, only witnesses, this is so deep. Abraham Joshua Heschel has said that there are no proofs for the existence of God, only witnesses, and Kalonimus Shapira was such a witness. It is a testimony to his faith in God and to the faith in learning, teaching, human communication, language, and most of all, the redemptive power of compassion. Oh, that's correct. I was reading in his biography that close to the liquidation of the Warsaw ghetto, Rabbi Ellen, I mean, Ellen, we even put this in the chat close to the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, He had an opportunity to escape, but he and a bunch of other leaders in the Warsaw Ghetto community, both religious and secular, had agreed that it was all for one and one for all. And so he stayed with his people. For what would he, as he said, what would have, Shapira said, what would have been the benefit of his survival at that point more than what he stood for and what he stood for was in jewish terms called kiddush hashem the sanctification of life and of god by accepting death martyrdom that at some point one's life is not no it's more important and god forbid i hope none of us ever 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 face. This choice—that it's more important to die for what you stand for than to live—at that point. Um, it, let me share one more writing here. Oh, I've run out of time. Okay, that's good. I won't. I won't get to it. To that, that's a whole other subject. Barbara Mermel wrote that, you think we could form a group at the shul where we read and examine and meditate on this book? Uh, uh, Yes, I won't be able to lead it, but someone will. So keep it very much in mind. But now that I finally cracked it, I'm going to go work on it myself too. Ah, yes. And Vicky says, as we mark this Holocaust Remembrance Day, that on PBS on Tuesday night, on Channel, 9, on Channel 13, um, there was a fabulous moving documentary. Vicky, were you one of the songwriters in that seven?
1: No, I was in the, uh, I dropped out of that round because, um, because my mom had just died. So wow. um, well, I got into the next round, but actually my song that I wrote is on the Sage Arts website sagearts.org
0: i heard your song vicky when you wrote it
1: hmm.
0: so that project called sage arts um, uh, they paired up songwriters with holocaust survivors they did it for several years and the job of the songwriter was to get to know the survivor and then write a song that reflected their life and experience and um it was made into a documentary, the concert from several years ago, 2019, I think it was, uh, right before the pandemic. And that documentary aired on Tuesday night. It's available for streaming, Amazon Prime, and you'll know people from our community in it. Bonnie Meadow is in it, and um, Tibor Spitz, and uh, Gabriel Dresdell's playing his cello at the concert. And Elise Pittleman. Elise Pittleman. Um, there's more. It's quite and it's quite amazing. I really recommend it. What was it called? Anybody remember?
1: Songs of the Survivors.
0: Okay, Songs of the Survivors. It's also, on, it
1: PBS. It's also on PBS Passport.
0: Oh, good. I have that too. Okay. It's worth watching both because you see our friends and community members, and um, because it's so beautiful.
1: And you can hear Bonnie's song also on the um, Sage Arts website.
0: Sage Arts website, Uh, you can uh, hear.
1: Because Bonnie,
0: there were seven songs, seven, but only four were tracked in the documentary. Bonnie's didn't get into the documentary, which is really a shame and neither did Elisa's. Um, So they're worth listening to. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, Cynthia. We're gonna wrap up ourselves now. Before I stop, uh, end the session, I, I wanna repeat. Look at these, this astonishing teaching and guidance that was present in the Warsaw ghetto in the face of everything that could have, that, that speaks against it about that humans can perpetrate. It feels like part of our responsibility as Jews is not only to remember, but to embody the teaching that is the opposite of evil. That Reb Colonimus Kalman Shapiro well propounded to his very last day. It's very I was thank you for letting me share all this.